it's not about having to have a lot of money or spending a lot of money. It's about being creative about marshaling the resources you have in ways that serve your life and your vision for your life, your live big vision. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome to episode 139 from the inside out, navigating meaningful financial change. For new listeners, welcome. For returning listeners, I am glad you are here to join us for another fascinating episode. This week, I have the honor of speaking with Dave Yeski, who's a distinguished financial planner who has had so much impact in our industry, whether it's through his company, working with individuals and companies, or teaching for over 20 years at Golden Gate University, or working in one of the several associations he's participated with, Dave has made a lasting impression on our industry. During this episode, he takes us on a thoughtful and provoking exploration of the hidden depths of our interior financial lives. From how we can unravel the meaning behind money and what money means to us, to navigating financial change, and he talks about how curiosity and compassion can help us unlock a path to a more fulfilling and balanced approach to money. Throughout the conversation, you'll really hear Dave talk about the significance of doing the interior work on ourselves when navigating our financial lives. Dave shares the story, the origin story behind their company tagline, Live Big. It's about the size of your life, not the size of your wallet. I really appreciate that tagline and his answer or his explanation was really, really insightful. Dave shares practical tips from their live big list. This was a list that they created during the recession as it provides people with little, simple, inexpensive things on how we could start to live a fulfilling life without excessive spending. And towards the end, we really touch on this idea of balance and how we can approach balance when navigating our interior side of money and the exterior side of money. It was a real honor to get the chance to spend this time with Dave I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And now, enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dave Yeski. Dave, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Your name has come across my screen. I was going to say desk, but it was really my screen several times. And I've always wanted to chat with you. And here we are chatting. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. It should be fun. I thought we'd start with a bit about your story. Stories often have multiple twists, plot changes, and turns that influence the existence of that story. 
And as individuals, we get the opportunity to reflect back on our personal stories. And there's often certain moments that stand out, perhaps inflection points, that influence our way of being or how we see and feel things. I want to take a trip down your memory lane to, which I believe was Cheyenne Mountain in the summer of 95 at a FPA retreat, where you attended a session with Dick Wagner and George Kinder. Which aspects of your being did this presentation resonate with? Gosh, I mean, I almost have to say all aspects because what they were doing is they weren't talking about something that no one had thought of before. No one, you know, and certainly any, anyone who had been practicing financial planning for any period of time, you know, sort of recognized that there was this human dimension to what we do that completely transcended the crunching of numbers. But they were the ones who surfaced it, brought it to the surface as a sort of a profession-wide dialogue that, that un- unless we could figure out, you know, how to systematically access the, the interior realm of clients where the really important stuff lives, I mean, until you can map their interior, interior realm, you don't understand who and what matters to them and why. And you don't get a full idea of their vision for their lives in the future for themselves and their family. And, you know, really good financial planning has to start with that. The quantitative part of what we do is the easy part. You know, much of the time, it's various applications of time value of money concepts. But change is hard. You know, individuals... They come to financial planners seeking change, either to adapt to external changes, environmental changes that are imposed on them, good or bad. You know, someone died in the family, maybe it was a wage earner, but or I had an inheritance. It could take any many different forms. Got a job, lost a job, whatever, and they need to adapt to that change. And there are financial dimensions to it. Or they they have volitional changes. They come to financial planners because they're worried about educating their kids, caring for aging parents, retiring in comfort. And the financial planner is called upon to help them figure out a strategy and a plan and then adapt their behavior to that strategy and plan so they can achieve those goals. But until you know what someone's deepest desires are, until you go inside and learn about what matters to them and who they are, what their values are, what their history is, what their family history, their, maybe their, in some cases, their cultural history, until you understand those things, you really can't advise them well. And some of that, and I can go on and on so you can, there may be one question in an hour of me talking, but you know what we've learned through a lot of research is that client trust and commitment comes when the planner knows how to connect the dots, knows how to not just come up with some feasible solution to their goal, but one that is visibly and demonstrably connected to who and what matters to them. You know, they have to see themselves reflected in your advice or they won't adopt it. They won't embrace it. And you can't do that. You can't craft recommendations that are suited to them. And then you can't frame and explain those recommendations in a way that connects the dots unless you first understand what that interior landscape looks like. So many wonderful areas we can go here, but I want to stick on this interior world. And you talked about behavior change is hard. And I think we all know whether it's changing our diet, exercising, all behavior change is hard. Then you throw in financial behavior change. It's like a very emotionally driven thing, money makes change even harder. And you talk about this interior world and it makes me think of the classic iceberg. Like the tip is the what we see and we try to change our behaviors and we fail because we only look at the tip. So it sounds to me you're inviting people to look below that waterline to go into this interior world you talk about. How have you experienced that we can best, whether it's a financial planner or just 
I don't know, someone who wants to have an honest conversation with a friend, but how do we best get invited into that interior world where a lot of us are afraid of or we've avoided those own parts of ourselves? You know, a lot of people go into what we call in financial planning a discovery meeting, which is where we're hoping to discover more about the person as a person, as a human being, and about their interior life. A lot of, especially if you're new to it, you know, people go in fearfully, or, or maybe even if you just have a new friend and you'd like to know them better. First and foremost, I think the most powerful approach is just to be curious. Mm-hmm. You know, don't show up with a bunch of pre-cooked questions. Just be curious. You know, ask them to tell you about themselves and, and, and then follow the threads based on your natural curiosity about that person and about what they're telling you. And, you know, sure, there are techniques, you know, the, the, the field of psychology and financial therapy have developed techniques for getting in there. A lot of people, a lot of theorists within the financial life planning movement have developed techniques. We teach a lot of those techniques at Golden Gate University in our financial life planning program. So there are techniques for doing this. But I think that the techniques need to be powered by a a sort of a natural and legitimate curiosity about the human being sitting in front of you. That'll lead you to the places that that you want to go. That'll lead you to places they want you to go. You know, people like to share about themselves by and large. They just need to be given the invitation. And you need to be a good listener. And there's a skill to that. (laughs) Like so many things, there's a skill to being a good listener. And the biggest one is to get out of your own way. You know, in, a, in about a week, I'm going to be going to Denver to, where I dean one of FPA's residency programs every year. Actually, I'm doing two in the last six months. And residency is this program that's been around for 25 years that takes newly minted CFPs, certified financial planner professionals, and puts them through six days of sort of a rigorous boot camp where they're doing casework and there's a lot of role play and they're given the opportunity to sort of practice you know, getting to know people, getting to know clients deeply and and then crafting financial planning rec- recommendations that are demonstrably connected to who and what matters to those people. These are things that can be trained, but they require they require reps. They're like anything mm-hmm. else. It's like going to the gym or anything else or learning for a, some other class. You know, if you're studying physics or biology or anything else, you know, it requires reps. You've got to go there again and again. And, and honestly, you have to go there with yourself. You know, in some ways, you can only go as deep with a client or a friend, uh, I think, as you've gone with yourself. Getting good at this also, it has to be a very experiential thing. You know, Dave, when you just made that last comment, I, uh, I'm a CFP. And until I found this work of all the wonderful individuals like yourselves of navigating these interior worlds, I was very much focused on the exterior world. And I understand why now. But until I went into my own iceberg, I thought I was a good listener. But I realized that I wasn't listening to hear or understand. It was listening to find a solution based on this templated approach. And what I'm hearing you say is like, I like this natural curiosity. And I, I just want to highlight that point is I think it's so important that we do our own work in order to open up those curiosity channels so we can actually listen to hear. Yeah. And that does come from work. It's, you know, I keep referencing Golden Gate University, GGU, because that's where I've done a lot of work in the last few years with many significant people within our profession to develop this financial life planning track. And every one of the classes that's been designed by the likes of Elizabeth Jaton and Sandra Davis and Rick Kaler, they're all designed to impart the, the intellectual knowledge to, to, to share the research 
and the, the theories and the structures and the techniques, but to do so in a highly experiential way. So you, you have to practice it with yourself and thus prepare yourself. You know, this, this, this idea of the iceberg, I mean, I love, I love that analogy. It's, it's applicable to all things and all things money, certainly. You know, Dick Wagner, the late, great Dick Wagner, you know, used to talk about money being the, the single most powerful secular force on the planet. And he was so right. You know, I mean, my background is in economics. And when you study economics, sooner or later, you get to the economics of money. And you're told money has three qualities. Money is a unit of account. It's how we measure things. It's a store of value. It's how we can defer consumption into the future. And it's a medium of exchange. It's how we can buy and sell things without resorting to barter. And then you start to practice financial planning with real life human beings and realize money may have those three qualities, but those are at the bottom of a much longer list. Money is about status and security and love. And money is about everything human. And this is where Dick, again, Dick Wagner, with his, this field he was working on, called, which he called phenology, and he conceived of as much broader than just financial planning because it encompassed all things money. And money permeates all things that are human, which makes sense when you think about the fact that money is the medium through which we interact with the material world. So, of course, it permeates everything. You know, in, in the last book he wrote, Financial Planning 3.0, Dick, Dick observes that money appears more times in the Bible than God. <laughs> so that probably tells us something about human beings being obsessed with money for as long as there's been money. We have to understand that it permeates everything and thus is a potential source of struggle and difficulty because, you know, life is hard. You know, we all struggle to get through life. We all, That's why so many of us have psychotherapists and friends and coaches and all the rest, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, a study group and people we talk to to help navigate all this. But this is where financial planners are like the high priests of money. If we've done our work to understand it at its deeper and broader level, how it actually sort of permeates all things human, then hopefully we can help our clients come to terms with their relationship to money in their lives and have it be not dysfunctional, but highly functional. Yeah. Wow. There's so many, again, wonderful areas we can go. And that financial planning 3.0 book, I remember reading that and I was like, this is music for my soul right now. And I found it when I needed to find it. And you're making me think of this idea of like money, it creates discomforts in us. It highlights our insecurities, our fears. But I think what I'm hearing you say is it could also in a way be perhaps like a conduit of change or a conduit to our hearts if we open up and embrace the difficulty that you you talk about. With that difficulty to the resistance that comes up when we face money, those insecurities are going into that deep, dark, cold water. How do we stick with that when we just want to flee? Our natural reaction is like, I'm getting out here. You're bringing up something really important, this notion that it does, it can and often is a source of discomfort and something we shy away from. You know, as often is the case with anything that has an emotional content to it. Because dealing with the interior, dealing with our own interior realm or someone else's is, you know, it requires energy and it is a dark, fearful realm at times. For ourselves and for others, we have to think of it as a practice. I have a, I have a client who came to me with no experience of money, had been recently divorced. She had not managed money in the household. She didn't really have a sense of what it meant. And suddenly she had some money and had to figure out how she was, how it was going to serve her. And she was someone who had been a, and is a deep Buddhist practitioner. I mean, she would go to not just to the Zen Center here in San Francisco, but she'd go to Tassajara and Green Gulch and the, and the meditation centers. And she would go for weeks and months at a time, you know, just meditating all day, every day. 
And she approached money the same way. Every time we talked, she'd say, I've made this part of my practice. For example, when you have money in the market, you know, it rises and falls. It changes, you know, its value goes up and down. And, and that can be an emotional experience. And so she leaned into that to try to be with that as part of her Buddhist practice. This is where we sort of have to accept the fact that it's, it's not necessarily going to be easy, either for ourselves or for others. And also, well, and, and then lean in and then lean in. And if you're a financial planning practitioner, you know, I know I keep repeating myself, but you got to do your reps. You've got to go deep within yourself. You've got to, you've got to study. You've got to practice. You've got to understand that the interior realm is a challenging place. And, you know, and then be prepared to go there with, you know, with respect and compassion. That's the other thing, you know, Dick and, and others have talked about is, you know, this question of who's in the room. Because, you know, when a, when a client walks into your conference room, you know, you're seeing the client, but, you know, they're actually walking in with a whole host of people. They're walking in with their, their parents and their grandparents and their cultural history and their personal experiences. And, you know, there's, there are thousands of people in that room with them. And it helps if you recognize that coming in. But it also helps if you recognize that you're walking in that room <laughs> with the host of people that have influenced you and your relationship with money and your personal history and your attitudes and values. And so I would say that, you know, approaching a conversation where you're trying to get to know someone and get to know their interior realm, yes, just being curious is, is, is a very important sort of mental stance, but also having a pay, place of great compassion. You know, I've been practicing over 30 years, so I've been practicing long enough. I've had clients freak out on me. And there were times, especially, you know, earlier in my career when I took the freak out personally, when mm. something was going on in their life that they didn't expect or didn't know how to deal with, it involved money. And if I'm their financial planner, I kind of take responsibility for that and I can take it personally when they're, when they're unhappy. And what I've come to learn is they're almost never unhappy with me. They're just freaking out. And so I need to be approaching it with, first of all, some confidence and compassion and understanding they're just, they're frightened or confused or afraid. This is a force that they don't understand. And if I approach it with compassion and curiosity, you know, we can probably get to a place where, where they're feeling more comfortable. You bring such a good point there, just going back to your idea of doing your own work, because I think in those moments, and perhaps I think this because I'm picturing myself in those moments. If we haven't done our work, we could be defensive. Be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You did it. Don't blame this on me, even though they might not even be blaming it. And I think just to, I guess, highlight the importance of doing our work, it, it allows us to show up with a open lens with our compassion and curiosity so that we can actually then show them that we see and hear them and I think that's such a Absolutely. gift when advisors can go there. And we need to put the client's interests first. We need to be fiduciaries. And therefore, we need to have that mindset where we're, we're focused on their discomfort and, and hopefully relieving it rather than our, our, than our discomfort. Because that's all our stuff. You know, our mm -hmm. discomfort is coming from our baggage. That's why you need to know your own shit. <laughs> because if you don't understand your own shit, you can't really begin to deal with someone else's baggage. I mean, I had an experience of this on the receiving end just a few days ago. I would, I, you know, I, I have an insurance broker I work with on a lot of property and casualty stuff, uh, including with the family. And I was, she was helping me with you know, putting together a package for my daughter, my youngest daughter. And at some point she called me up and it turned out that 
my daughter is moving from, you know, one address in Colorado Springs to another address in Colorado Springs. And all of a sudden, Chubb won't write the new address. And we thought we had this whole package put together and suddenly it's out the window. I ended up getting extremely frustrated during this call because the insurance broker was spending all of her time trying to make it my fault. And it's like, I just want to hear what the next step is. I don't want to hear that you're feeling bad and that it's my fault. And it's like, that I didn't tell you that they were moving or whatever. It's like, just tell me what the next step is. I'm not putting blame on you. And so you don't need to self-defensively, you know, preemptively put blame on me. It's like, let's just talk about the solution. Come to me with a solution What's or, or an action. What's the next step? You know, that's just an, was an example in my life, again, on the receiving end of it, it, it never goes well if, if you allow your emotions to get wrapped up. If you get defensive, it's like James Grubman, a psychologist, he wrote a, a short piece that's called The Perfect Apology. If you've ever called a helpline or anything, you know that this is, his work is brilliant. He says, you know, when someone calls you and they're upset about something, something didn't go right, and it did, or at least it didn't go right from their perspective, you know, their emotions are ramped up. If you meet them where they are, everybody gets ramped up even more. That only leads to bad places. You know, you have to meet them calmly. And with that state of curiosity and, you know, tell me, you know, tell me what, what's, what you're concerned about. Tell me what, what, you know, what you're worried about and tell me more and tell me more and tell me more and let them do all the talking and let, until they're done and then repeat back to them what you heard and don't try and be self-defensive. Don't try and put the blame on someone else, including them. Just try and, and let them let it all out. Be curious about all the things that are concerned because they might have concerns that you that you know you have assumptions about why they're upset and your assumptions might very well be wrong. And so this is a case where discovery is really important. They'll come down to your level if you approach it calmly. I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you again and again until you seem to be done. And then I'm going to reflect back to you what I heard. And then we're going to go from there. If you've lived through very many of those situations, good and bad, you know, you see the wisdom in that. Yeah, it seems like that curiosity tenders the armor or the defensiveness that's been built up and goes back to a basic psychological need of being heard. If we hear the person, then all of a sudden we're having an effective conversation. Right. I mean, I'm sure we've all, I know I've had the experience of calling a a helpline for some product or service. And having the person on the other end prematurely try and jump to either blame or a solution when I'm not done expressing what it is I want to share about what I'm feeling. So I've experienced it on my end. And I, because of the, just the, the personal work that I've done in this area, you know, I recognize why I'm frustrated. I recognize where things are going wrong. It's like, I just want them to be quiet and let me tell them why I'm calling rather than have them jumping in and trying to prematurely solve it. You sound like uh, my wife when, before I really realized how much I silence her in our financial lives. I'm like, when she's trying to explain to me her view and just wants to be heard, I'm like, ah, I'm the financial planner. Like I got this figured out. That was a lesson in uh, how to hear. But yeah, it's the same thing. We want to be heard. She wanted to have her. She doesn't care. I'm the CFP. She just, she has her own opinion. If that's not Well, and the thing is, it's not about crunching the numbers, right? It's It's about her relationship to money. And how it's affecting her life and her perceptions and her emotions. And so, the, and those things she owns, you know, she doesn't own whether or not two plus two equals four. She owns how she, how she feels about the money forces in your, in your collective lives. Mm-hmm. 
when we follow the trails of our, like the emotions that are evoked through money, we can just reveal so much about ourselves and others that I, I really appreciate this interior view you really, really focus on. And I think one of the things that I'm going to, I'm a big hockey fan. My Edmonton Oilers, I live in Edmonton, Alberta. They're in the playoffs right now. They go through like hell every night, body checking, fighting, but they have this vision of the Stanley Cup that like pulling them through those difficult times. So I'm linking hockey, but I like about with your- Hey, I have for- season tickets to the Caps, even oh, though I don't do? go very up. Oh. Yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly clients who go to those games, but I, I have been to games and, and come to realize what an exciting game it can be. And it's, I, I get it. It's so good. My son, Seven, one of his favorite players is Ovechkin. So with the Capitals. So you said the Caps, right? Caps, yeah. Yeah, okay. So they they go through this resistance, this hard time, probably some of their interior work. Why am I playing hockey or why do I have a broken leg? But the Stanley Cup draws them like that bigger picture. I want to bring this to your firm. I really like the name of your firm of Live Big. It's about the size of your life and not the size of your wallet. And what I mean by this, I think these items can help draw or keep us doing the work, meeting the resistance when we have this direction. Maybe we don't know the destination, but this direction to go to. I, I want to switch it to you. What's the origin story of Live Big? And how, if anything at all, do you think that has helped your clients navigate their own resistance? Thank you for that question. I mean, it's, it's um, when Elisa Bowie and I decided back in the day, back in 2006, 2007, that we were actually going to merge our firms to form Yeski Bowie. Which, by the way, I've had people say to me, well, you got married in 2006, so of course you merged your firms. And it's like, have you never been married? I was like, <laughs> the last reason to do it. You know, at some level, we were convinced we'd kill each other, but fortunately we didn't. We ended up being, uh, having non-overlapping areas of interest and it worked out well. But, but early on, we were trying to articulate this notion of what it was that we were trying to offer in terms of how we wanted to serve clients and advise clients. And, and, and we were coming up with phrases like life abundant and so forth. And then at some point we came up with live big and live big, you know, not, not being the same as living large, right? Mm-hmm, live mm-hmm. big. That's why we say it's about the size of your life because it's not about money. I mean, money's a dimension there, obviously, but it's about making the most of whatever your resources are. And I'll tell you, when talking about origin stories, I mean, we merged, our merger was official on January 1 of 2008. And we rolled out all of this new messaging and the, the live big concept. And we didn't realize that we were in the early stages of, of a major economic meltdown in the form of the Great Recession. And as the Great Recession rolled and expanded over the course of 2008 and into the beginning of 2009, you know, we were really worried that this notion of live big would be misconstrued at a time when people are kind of terrified they didn't know what was happening. They felt like the world was falling apart around them and that, and they felt like their finances were falling apart. And we're talking, we're saying live big. And, and so we, we knew it was a dangerous thing. And so we approached it as a, a lens through which you could navigate this, this chaos. And in fact, Elisa, my, uh, my partner and life mate, she came up with this concept, which was the live big list. And it was called How to Live Big in Trying Times, because it was, you know, 2008, 2009 were definitely trying times. And I'm going to read you just if I can, just the first part of this. You know, it's, it basically said, we sent this out to all of our clients and allied professionals and media contacts. And it was a, and the question was, what does live big mean? 
you know, some may interpret it as meaning spend big or live large or a recommendation to some other form of overindulgence. But live big is about the size of your life, not the size of your wallet. In these crazy economic times, and I can say they're always crazy economic times, right? In these crazy economic times, it can sometimes be difficult to remember the areas of our life where we can live big without spending much, if any, money. But we can find a place of gratitude for what we have. We can find joy in the most mundane places and hopefully at least get our minds off how scary the world can seem at times. We offer these ideas for your consideration and we'll be updating this document. Please send us your thoughts. And it was a list of things like walk the dog, borrow one if you don't have one, hug someone, be careful. It should generally be someone you know. Start a gratitude journal. Read all of those books you've been collecting. Meanwhile, drinking all that tea that's accumulated in your cupboard. Write a poem or at least read one. Continue to make your charitable contributions. Watch It's a Wonderful Life, Love Actually, or some other super good feel movie. And it goes on from there. And it was all things that, when you think about it, they're what makes life really meaningful and they don't cost money. Financial Advisor Magazine made that the cover story of their December issue in 2008. And we had so many fellow advisors from around the country, you know, call us and say, or, or email us and say, can I, can I incorporate the live big list in my year end letter to clients? It's like, yeah, live it up, go for it. But live big, while it was a risky proposition, rolling it out on the cusp of one of the major economic meltdowns of our era, it turned out that we were able to use it as a way of actually leveraging a different vision for the role of money in, in your life. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you said it felt like a dangerous thing were your words to roll out this, this name at this time. And it just seems like I understand that, but I could hear it in your voice that it, it sounds like with both of you, it came from this, it must have been this authentic place that comes from doing your own work that you didn't mean it in this like, you know, catchy way that people, it won't resonate with people because, you know, it's a marketing gimmick. And I think it just speaks to going with what you feel is important. And obviously it worked with all those people who asked to use the list. And I was going to talk about a few of them that I was reading on your big list. And this is what I have. Exercising, playing with cards, watching a comedy routine and watching a thunderstorm on your front porch. What's interesting is that, you know, Live Big has kind of emerged in a lot of places since then. We were able to service market because no one else was using the phrase. But since then, years later, there was an issue of O Magazine that had Oprah on the front with arms spread wide and in big letters across the top, it said Live Big. So, <laughs> Did she quote you? <laughs> no, she didn't. Uh, she and didn't. Elisa jokes, you know, we, we should have reached out to her and said we're going to sue. But the reality is we only own Live Big with respect to financial services. But... And it would have been a good excuse to reach out to Oprah in any case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How, if anything at all, have you observed this live big sentiment or I guess more of a way of being helps your clients during these financial changes like that they're trying to make? Have you seen that, whether it's the list of the items that we were just talking about or just the overall concept of lifting big helps pull them out of those hard times when they're doing the hard work to make changes? So the idea of live big is is about possibilities and it's about, you know, we also talk about dream big, you know, it's live big is, is this concept that, that whatever your resources, you could have a live big existence and you just need to believe it and then be creative about it. And so that's really the way we approach it is, is and this is where 
going deep with clients is really helpful. Because if they say to you, you know, I want to do X, but you don't understand the deep underlying why behind that, you know, you may be left saying, well, you know, that looks like that would cost this amount of money if you wanted to pursue that in your life and you can't afford that. Instead of saying, well, why do you want to do that? You know, what's your motivation? And then being creative about how their resources might support that. This is probably not the best example, but it comes back to me from 2000 and 2009. You know, Elisa, except for her brother, all of her living relatives are in England, in and around London. And that year she said to me, you know, she might imagine, financial planners, our, our income was down too, just like our clients. <laughs> and she said, gosh, you know, I really wanted to go to London this year and, and it's not feeling comfortable doing so. And so we didn't say, no, we can't do it. We said, well, what, let, let's take a second look at the resources available to us. And, you know, we had a house on both coasts. We had one in Vienna, Virginia, and one in San, we had an apartment in San Francisco. And we said, well, you know, we could put our apartment in San Francisco in a home exchange program, which we did. And we ended up actually doing a home exchange with a couple who, who lived in Greenwich, which is, a, which is one of the districts of London. And they had an old you know, 200-year-old townhome there. And we did a home exchange with them. And we ended up having free housing. And we used miles to get a ticket. And once we were there, we're living in someone's townhome in, in Greenwich. And we're out traipsing all over London by foot every day. And on the way home, we'd go to Marks and Spencer and get a frozen pizza or something. I mean, the thing is, you have to eat no matter where you are, right? So that didn't add anything to our budget. And in a sense, it was like a week in London for free because we just decided to think differently about how to marshal the resources that we had available to us. And that's, you know, sort of the way we think about Live Big is like, it's not about having to have a lot of money or spending a lot of money. It's about being creative about marshaling the resources you have in ways that serve your life and your vision for your life, your Live Big vision. But again, unless you know, understand deeply what lies behind someone's vision for their life, it's harder to do that. You know, if someone says, gosh, I don't mean, I don't even know. I'm, I should have thought of examples before. I mean, I think about Elisa having a passion for, for helping animals, especially dogs. You know, and we give money to the SPCA. But if we suddenly decided that, that we couldn't afford to support the ASPCA, the other thing she's doing is she spends half a day every Wednesday at Muttville, which is a senior dog rescue in the vet suite. And I have to tell you, senior dog vet suite, mostly it's a lot of teeth being pulled, but, but she keeps the charts and she knows how to do catheters and, and monitor all the equipment. And, and this really feeds her soul and it doesn't cost her, it costs her whatever it costs to, to take an Uber ride over there. You know, if you understand that someone's underlying why, you can help advise them better about how they can, how they can satisfy that why or pursue that why in a way that's con congruent with their available resources. You know, it, it's really making me think of this this idea that's been percolating in my mind lately is like a sailor needs to know what destination they're going, the live big model, like where they're going, but they need to know their starting position before they head off to sea. And I really hear this, what you're talking about is like, we need to understand our interior work so we can determine the destination we want to go. And so it brings me this idea of balance. I might be wrong here, but I believe you're, on the term of balance, your doctorate was in a form of balance, a financial model, is, if, if I'm correct, in terms of no, you're right. we can focus a lot on like the data-driven model or what the client wants, 
or what the planner wants, but it's it's in this middle ground that lies balanced. So I'm going to switch it over to here because it's your work, not mine. This idea of, hey, we got to know what the future is, like our, where we're going, this live big. We need to understand our interior work, where we're starting. How do we incorporate all this balance or what have you learned about bringing balance to this whole conversation? Gosh, it's such a great question. And you know, and you're right, as part of my doctoral research, I had developed and then empirically tested a model to describe sort of the strategy dimension of financial planning, the strategic dimension, how financial planners engage with their clients while developing strategies for them. Uh, I posited five modes, and it was kind of on a spectrum of engagement, you know, from the planner-driven mode at one extreme, which is where the planner just dictates everything. You know, that's, that I guess a great example of that is Roy DeLiberto, who's, you know, done a lot of work. He was the founder of RTD Financial, and, and, and he's done a lot of work in the financial life planning area. Years ago, he told me about this panel he was on, probably with George Kinder and some other people like that on financial life planning. And at some point, I'm not going to name names, but a very prominent financial planner was sitting in the back row. And at some point he stood up and said, this is pissing me off. I know what my clients need before they ever walk through my door. There's sort of a class of thought around that where, you know, there are some planners room is like, they need to retire at 65 and they need to send their kids to college and they need to have enough insurance and that's it. And I don't, I don't need to figure out what they think about what their life should, should contain. That's what I need to advise them on as a financial planner. And of course, that's such a unidimensional one, but that's a, that's a common thread. So that's the, the, the planner driven. And at the other extreme was the client driven, which is just like entirely like about validation where clients are kind of doing their own stuff, but they might want to check in and get some validation. And again, there's not... At either end, there's not much of an interactive relationship. The three central modes, you know, which was the data-driven, the policy-driven, and the client-driven were the ones that had that more balanced approach where, you know, you are crunching the numbers and you're crunching the numbers in, in pursuit, in service of goals that are meaningful to the clients. The client-driven means you also understand how to go deep and understand how to map the client's interior realm so that you know, when you develop policies, that's where that central sort of policy-driven, when you distill down your best practices on the data-driven side and your understanding of the client, when you distill those down and combine them, you can come up with financial planning policies that are these compact decision rules that help guide action and decision-making. But what's interesting is that I tested the model in completing my dissertation, but I went back and I tested it further sort of you know, sort of postdoc stuff by going out and, and actually gathering a lot more data from, you know, I'd go to conferences and maybe there are going to be 300 attendees. I'd, I'd ask the attendees to send in, the, to go online and do the survey beforehand. And I did that again and again. And one of the things that I found is that as a whole, as a profession, we're very balanced across those three modes. But when you break it down to individuals, you find that everybody has a has a, a strategic comfort zone. Almost every individual will either skew high on the data-driven side or they'll skew high on the client-driven side. They're either really good at the interior dimension, but they don't crunch the numbers so well, or they're really good at crunching the numbers, but they're not that good at getting into the interior realm. So that across the profession, we're balanced, but individually, we tend to have a, what I, again, what I call a strategic comfort zone. And... This is where, again, we got to do our reps. And, and to those people who are true believers in financial life planning and, and understanding the psychology of financial planning and 
knowing how to go deep, you also better know how to, you, you better understand Monte Carlo also. You better understand time value of money. You better understand the tax code. You need to also be able to crunch the numbers. You can't get by with both. And when I was doing my research, my original research, what I found interesting, because I also, I didn't just get data from financial planners. I got data from their clients. And what I found is that clients actually valued the data-driven mode more than the client-driven mode. In other words, the data-driven mode had higher propensity to foster client trust and relationship commitment than the client-driven mode did. And I thought, that, that seems counterintuitive to me. But Elisa talked to some individual clients who had participated, not even who had participated in the, in the research, but just brought this results to them. And they said, well, yeah, we want to have a good relationship with our clients and or with our planners, and we want them to know us well, but we also want to know they have big brains. Mm-hmm. So from a client's perspective, also, you need to bring balance to the whole process. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I would have thought, this is my own bias, that it would be the client-driven, but you're right. They, they want to make sure we're competent. They want to make sure we're competent, and we better be competent. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, a, if you're a CFP professional, as you and I both are, and as probably most or many, certainly many of your listeners are, you know, we understand that un- under, the, under the code of ethics for being a CFP, you actually are under a formal obligation to only give advice where you truly believe you're competent to give that advice. And that means not just having good interior skills, it means actually polishing your exterior skills, your quantitative skills and refreshing those on a regular basis too. We have such a responsibility when people give us their life savings that we need to make sure we're taking care of it on right. and on both ends. I got a question. I, I, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble with someone, and I don't think it will. I had a guest on the podcast twice who told me a very similar story as you. He told it from the lens that he was a person in this meeting who, who said that he doesn't need the psychology stuff. With curiosity being talked about, Rick Kaler told me a very similar story from his lens, and I couldn't help but think if he was that individual you're, you're resorting in the story. No. Well, oh. you know what's interesting is, first of all, it wasn't Rick Kaler. And secondly, the course he teaches at Golden Gate University, you know, facilitating financial health, yeah, tools for financial planners, therapists, and co- coaches and therapists, is all about interior realm. It's all about understanding money scripts. And money scripts live inside your head. Yeah. And they get there because of your personal history and your family history and all the rest of that. So, you know, Rick is all about the interior realm. It's Our, just interesting. He was, he was telling me about like way long ago and like I think before he got into this, a psychologist came to a meeting and then he got fascinated in this work. Okay. And Rick was one of the individuals who so graciously... Um, when I showed some curiosity around his work from his book, Facilitating Financial Health, he really was super kind to me and gave me a lot of resources. So now oh, I know that's he's, great. But he had told me this story at one point, way before he was diving into that work, he heard a psychologist come to a financial planning meeting and he was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, you know, and we all start, I say we all started out. I mean, I started out that way. I, don't, I, I sort of assume it's true of everyone. You certainly start out, when you look at the way financial planning is generally taught, or at least historically, the way it's been taught in universities, it's about crunching the numbers. It's about developing quantitative skills. It's about, you know, what's the first thing you have to learn as a, as a financial planning student? You have, to learn, you have to learn and master the concepts of the time value of money, right? You have to be able to do future value, present value calculations, present value of a growing annuity. You have to be able to do all those. And, and you do, and believe me, I believe you do have to do all those. So you do have to understand all those things. And that's mostly what gets taught. And you study tax planning and it's all about 
the tax code and tax compliance and, and, and how to minimize taxes legally. And estate planning is likewise, you know, a lot about the tax code. And so that's the way it historically has been taught. And sometimes there'll be like a client relationship management course that's an add-on, or maybe it's even just an elective. And we've come to realize that you can't do any of the quantitative stuff well unless you, unless you are conversant in the interior realm at the same time. And so it's begun to thread through everything. Sandra Davis took over for me as program director at GGU in January. And so I'm not, I'm not responsible for all that stuff anymore. But it used to be when you had to report, you know, when you had to report on your program to CFP board to, to maintain your registration with them as a, as, a, as a program that satisfied the education requirement. Once they came out with the, the psychology of financial planning as being another knowledge domain that had to be taught and tested on, they're starting to ask, you know, which classes contain this? And my answer was they all do because that's the way we designed our classes from the get-go. You know, Elisa redesigned the estate planning class and she got this really big fat textbook for money education that is a great technical resource. And the students have to work their way through it over the course of the semester. And the class provides them with lots and lots of like practice questions and answers to the practice questions and, and, and quizzes and all the stuff so they can work their way through all that technical material. But the actual class discussions and exercises all involve the human dimension. Because the estate planning dimension of financial planning is like every other dimension. The human dimension is the driver, right? People don't have some desire to pass it to, you know, their sole desire is not to pass on a legacy or an estate and minimize taxes. Their desire is to benefit individuals and organizations in a particular way. And so you have to understand who and what matters to them and why before you can advise them on that. And so it has to thread through everything. It has to permeate everything. So it's, it's one of those things. Where, and I think that I'm sure I'm confident that the programs I'm not familiar with are also doing all that same stuff, threading it through everything, because that recognition is, at least in the more educated parts of the financial planning profession, the understanding of the importance of psychology in the interior realm is, I think, is more or less universe, universally accepted at this point. I hope it is. I think the whole industry is grateful for individuals, especially like yourself, who you could tell, I can just tell by the tone and your your energy that you have is that you don't, I think it's that difference between knowing and embodying where then we can actually change. Like when we, like we can know every book in the world, but if we don't embody that, I think change is hard to permeate. And it seems like, it definitely seems like that's where you're at and you're doing that through the work at, Golden Gate and through your firm and all the articles you write and someone like myself, we, 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 we certainly look up to individuals like you. So thank you for all the work you've been doing. My last question before we run out of time is if you're at end of life and you're sitting on this front porch reflecting on life and you decide to write a letter to your, someone down the, the lineage, your grandchildren, you write a letter to your grandchildren of what you learned entails a happy, healthy relationship with money, what would be a theme to that letter? You know, I think the theme would be that it's important to not be imprisoned by money. It's important to not have it, not be like Marley in, in, in Christmas Carol and have, it, and have it become a weight around your neck. But it's also important to recognize that you have to be prudent, that, that if you have resources, if you spend less than you earn and you save you suddenly have resources. And if you have resources, you have choices. 
And anytime you have choices, you're going to live a fuller life. You're going to follow different paths than you would otherwise follow. And so don't be a prisoner to money, but understand that it's important to take it seriously and to build resources so that you will have choices. Yeah, that, you know, people talk about money being freedom, but that last part, building resources so you have choices, a freeing place to be. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I really appreciate it. If people are listening and they're curious where they can find you online, do you have resources that you'd point them to? Well, you know, if they go to if they go to our website, which is yebu.com, Y-E-B-U.com, that's just a contraction of Yeski Bowie, com. You know, we have a lot there. Every other week we do a, a Live Big Way digest with lots of articles. It's all hundred percent produced in-house. So it's, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles from the last couple of decades that represent our thinking and our philosophy. And and I'm also, you know, easily reached via the website or just at Dave at Yebu.com. And, you know, provide if I've talked about something today and someone's curious about it and, and wants to know where can I read more about that, I can send articles or direct people places. I'm I'm always happy to do that. Well, thank you so much. You are you are a kind individual. So thank you so much for being with us today. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, just big thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. It was fun, Sean. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind.